My name is Brandon. Welcome to River City. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to have you. If you are new or visiting, I especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here. And, and uh, like John was saying, small groups is a great way to do that uh, as well. I just want to encourage you to come out to Vision Night. If you call River City Church home, we'd love to have you there. It's just like a great way to find out more about where we're headed as a church, what God's up to, and how to be on board with that in the coming year. And so excited to have that as well. So uh, looking forward as well to continuing our series in the Gospel of John this morning. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, let me briefly catch you up and we'll dive in this morning to chapter three. But before we get there, like we said from the beginning, uh, John, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is kind of like a documentary that tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But as we've seen, John's documentary about Jesus is very different. It's very unique from the other three Gospels. The vast majority of what we read in John's gospel is only found here. He ignores all kinds of stuff the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new, never-before-seen, kind of behind-the-scenes footage, right? Like uh, a bunch of things about Jesus' life and ministry that the other gospel writers just didn't cover. And the reason for a lot of those differences has a lot to do with the timing and the audience of John's book. John writes his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other ones are written, and he writes it to an audience that would have been familiar with and had access to those other gospel accounts. And in fact, it's likely that a significant portion of John's readers that he has in mind are second or third generation Christians, people whose parents or grandparents had become Christians, some of the first to follow Jesus. And so they'd grown up hearing the stories about him and, and reading about them in the gospel accounts that become familiar with Jesus. But the reality that John seems to understand is that there's a bunch of people who had just become far too familiar with him. And so instead of just making another documentary about what Jesus said and did, the focus of John's documentary is on who Jesus is. What he's trying to do is trying to, throughout the gospel, is to wake people up from this kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus to this spectacular, captivating, eternity-altering reality of who Jesus claimed he was and showed and proved himself to be. Because John's after is he, he, he doesn't want people to have a head-level knowledge about Jesus. He wants people to have this life-transforming, heart-level belief in him. So that's, that's at the very heart of what John's after throughout the gospel. And as we study the second half of John chapter 3 this morning, what we're going to see, John giving us a glimpse into is, is one of the ways that a genuine heart-level belief in Jesus transforms our lives. And what I want to show you in the, from the passage this morning is that believing the truth about Jesus, it causes us to find joy in making his name great instead of our own. You see, when you see Jesus for who he really is, it produces in you this kind of glad humility that roots out envy and jealousy and, and it, out of your heart. And at the same time, it fills you with this incredible joy in getting to be a part of Jesus' name and his glory increasing, even when that comes at the expense of your own. It is such an encouraging and beautiful and yet challenging passage. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. So let's pray. We'll dive into God's word and See what he has to say to us this morning. God, thanks so much for our time together, and thanks for gathering us this morning that we might uh, know you and love you and worship you more. And so we just pray humbly, God, as we come to your word, that you might be gracious to teach us more about who you are, that you might help us to see you rightly, and maybe where we've just been groggily familiar with you, Jesus, you might wake our hearts up to the eternity-altering reality of who you are. And so help that reality to shape us and to change us, to cause us to have joy and life in making your name great and 
And for any of that to happen, we need you, Jesus. And so we ask God for our good and so that you might be glorified in us, that you might meet us in your word this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It reads this way. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. And now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This is before John, again, this is John the Baptist here, uh, was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, that one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. For the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom awaits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. For the one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. For the one who comes from heaven is above all. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. For whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives uh, the Spirit without limit, and the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. All right, so the, the passage this morning, it begins with both Jesus and John the baptizing, uh, the Baptist baptizing people, right, in the Judean countryside. The other gospel writers make clear that the baptism that's happening here is not about salvation, it's not about changing people standing with God. Instead, it's this, this outward sign of a humble repentance and people's hearts turning back towards God in this glad obedience to Him and faith in Him. And and John clarifies in the beginning of chapter 4, we'll see this next week, but that it's actually Jesus' disciples who are doing the baptizing, not Jesus himself. And, and I think that's important because you can only imagine the kind of like pride and elitism right, that would have divided the early church if some people were like, yeah, well, I got baptized by Jesus, and you just got baptized by whoever else was hanging around with him, right? I'm like varsity Christian, you are JV, right? We have the super special version, right? And you, you know that would have happened because what you see happening in the passage already, right, is that there's this very real sense of jealousy and rivalry that's happening amongst John the Baptist's own followers already. Verse 25 and 26, right? An argument developed between some of, John, some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Right? They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was baptizing with you on the sons of the Jordan, that one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. Now, John does not give us any details about their argument. He doesn't name any of the people. You don't find, we don't find anything else about anything that's going on here later in the book. And that's because who is arguing and what they're arguing about is not the point. See, the point of the reason why John includes this is because he's trying to show you what they're arguing is revealing about what's going on in their hearts. You see, they're not just alerting John the Baptist to the fact that Jesus is also baptizing people. 
We see that John's disciples were becoming envious and jealous of the increasing popularity and influence of Jesus' ministry, especially because it seemed to be coming at the expense of their own. Not that long ago, all the crowds were flocking to John to be baptized, and now more and more what's happening is that they're going from John to Jesus. They're leaving him, they're coming to Jesus. And John's disciples, they see Jesus' ministry as this kind of competition to their own, right? So much so that they're not even willing to say his name. Do you notice that in verse 26? Right? They say, that man who was with you on the other side, right? That one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, You see, it's not that they don't know Jesus' name, like John has told them who Jesus is, like it's like John is like it's they're not confused about who Jesus is, right? It's that they they're feeling threatened by him. And one of the things that you do when you're feeling threatened, right, by someone or you're feeling envious of them is you depersonalize them, right? Right? Like, oh them. I don't I'm not even gonna say their name. It's just, you know, uh, that thing over there. Right? Because to name it, right, is to, give, is to give credit to it. And that's the very thing with envy that you, you can't do. You see, and we shouldn't be surprised by this envious reaction of John's disciples. Here's the reality. All of us have either felt that way or will feel that way someday. It is just a common level human emotion. Right? Maybe in your job you've been working really hard for a long time and climbing the ladder and then some new hotshot comes in and they're legitimately more skilled than you and they start getting all the promotions that you had your eye on and everyone's going after them. They're asking them for help and advice and you're kind of just left in the dust. Or maybe it's happened in your family when a sibling started to get more attention or praise that once you were getting. And maybe it's happened in your friend group, right? At one time you were kind of the center of that group. You're the one who held it together. But now somebody who's more funny or more interesting or more charismatic has joined that group, and now they're kind of the de facto leader of that group, right? And you are feeling eclipsed. One pastor puts it this way, no matter who we are, no matter how much success you are having, sooner or later in our lives, our lives or our ministries will all be eclipsed. The most successful, competent, or famous will one day be asked to take a lesser role. See, and the reality is for all of us, when that inevitably happens, there is this tendency in us, when we are being eclipsed by someone or something else, to become envious. But what's really important that you understand about envy and jealousy, right, is that one commenter puts it this way, right? Envy is not merely about wanting something you don't have. It's about wanting to be someone you aren't. Envy is about our failure to live up to a version of ourselves that we want to or imagine we should be. See, at the heart of what's going on with envy is that we're not just comparing ourselves to someone else. We're comparing ourselves to the person we think we should be or that we want to be. Right? And it's a burden that's always exhausting and crushing because here's the reality. Even if you become that version of yourself that you think you should be or deserve to be, even if you achieve it, then what happens is your whole purpose just shifts towards maintaining that identity. And so, yeah, you've got it, but now you just have to work really hard on making sure someone else doesn't take it from you. And so it's not like there's life at the end of that road. There's just more weight and more burden. It's just a different kind of, 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 uh, it's a different kind of pain that's there. 
You see, but the good news that we, that we see as we take a look at the way John the Baptist responds to his followers and the way that John, the gospel writer, comments about John's interaction, right? And what we're going to see is that faith in Jesus, it it's not only roots out envy and jealousy from your heart, right? It, it not only roots out the envy and jealousy that comes from, from not being the person we think we should or deserve to be, it actually replaces that with a kind of life and joy that comes from playing the role that God's given you in helping others to see how great he really is. It's not just that it uproots envy, it's that it replaces with, with joy. See, in verse 27 through 30, we see that this transformation, it's rooted in the reality that, that believing the truth about who Jesus is, that's actually the thing that enables you to believe the truth about who you are. Right, and who God's made you to be. John replies to the disciples, their envious concern. He says to them, verse 27, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Right, he's telling these guys, listen, hey, guys, heads up here, right? God's the one who decides who we are. He's the one who hands out ministry roles. He's the one who gives us purpose and gives, us, gives our lives meaning. It's, it doesn't matter who you think you are or who you think you deserve to be. What matters is who God has made you to be. It matters the role that he has sovereignly given to you to play in his good kingdom work. So the reality is that so much of our jealousy and our envy stems from, it's rooted in the fact that we want to be the ones who decide who we are. We want to determine our own identity and our own purpose. We want to be the ones who set it and define it instead of resting in God, the, who God's made us to be and equipped us to be and, and to do. What happens is we rage against that and we look at the opportunities or the, the skills or the abilities that God's given others and we pridefully think that we're the ones who really deserve those things, that we're more capable, that we're more deserving or or you look at yourself and you just mourn over this perceived insignificance and inferiority that you have. That's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. If you are here a year ago, we walked through that book together. And one of the things that you kept seeing is that there's all this constant infighting. And there's just pride and self-pity that are consuming this church. Because they're just looking at these opportunities God's given them to serve and minister. And they either think they're really great or that they're really worthless. And it's destroying them. John's words here are this reminder, God's the one. He's the one. Anything we have, it comes from him. He's the one who decides who we are. He's the one who gifts us for ministry for him. So John's words in verse 27, there's this reminder that God's sovereignly given all of us different roles to play in his kingdom work. But then verse 28, he goes on to remind us, to clarify that there's this one role that he hasn't given anyone. There's one role that God's reserved that none of us have. Verse 28, John says it this way, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. He says, guys, listen, I've said it again. I've said it before. And let me say it again for you. Let me just be, just let me be overtly upfront with you, right? I am not the Messiah. I am not the Savior. Jesus is, right? He's the divine bridegroom who's come to rescue and redeem this unfaithful bride. His, his blood that can cleanse her sin and make her pure and holy. It's, it's his work that makes her right with him. I can't do any of that. I'm not the Messiah. It's this reality that John is glad to admit it doesn't bother him at all. In fact, what you see is that it's really clear that there's life, there's joy. And like John is happy to admit that he is not the Messiah, right? And like John, I just want you to hear me say this out loud as your pastor. Uh, I am not the Messiah either, right? So, you know, my, if my wife were here, she'll be at the next service. She's like, 
preach that, right? That'll <laughs> affirm, right? I can tell, yeah. Right? I am going to fail you. I am going to let you down. For many of you, I probably already have, right? I'm not the Messiah. I am limited and fickle and flawed, but Jesus isn't. And so John's not the Messiah, and neither am I. Here's the good news. You aren't either. You aren't the savior of your family, your children, your spouse, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. You can't even save yourself, let alone anyone else. See, some of us, we live with this unbelievable pressure and anxiety and weight because even though you might say that Jesus is the king, that he's the savior, you functionally live as though all of it rides on you. You live like you're the savior, and unless your effort and your work Unless you do all the right things, then your kids aren't going to become Christians, or your family might not know Jesus, or whatever it happens, right? You're the rescuer, you're the savior, you live like that. And you can't live under that burden because you are not the savior. See, remembering that you are not the savior, that you're not the king because Jesus already is, that, that does wonders to root out envy and jealousy in your heart. Because what it does, right? Because what happens is you start to get to compare this person you think you're supposed to be, and you bring in Jesus to that, and you let him not only be the Savior, but you let him be the king who tells you who you already are. You get to rest in what he says about you, not who you think you have to become. And there's life there. There's joy there. See, and the good news is that believing the truth about who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, right? that frees you up from envy so that you can actually have joy in being who God's made you to be and playing the role he's given you to play. You see, John isn't just happy to tell everybody who Jesus is. He's not just happy to tell everybody who he is not. He is happy as well to tell others about who God's made him to be, right? He is glad to tell others about the role God's given him. Verse 29, he says, right? The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He says, that joy is mine and it's now complete. John says, guys, I'm not the Messiah. I am not the Savior. I'm not the divine bridegroom. I'm the best man. I'm the sidekick and it is amazing. I don't know about if you've ever got the chance to be the best man or the maid of honor in a wedding, but that is really such a great joy because in a sense what your role functionally is is like you get to be the lead rejoicer, right? You're like the lead celebrator, right? Someone you really love and care about is celebrating one of the most special and important days in their life and they've invited you to have this front row seat to their joy, and to invite others to celebrate with them with you. And there's such life in there. Your job is not just to help them have the best day, but your job is functionally to help others celebrate their joy with them. There's life there. In a Jewish wedding, the best man played another unique role as well. He acted as a kind of liaison between the bride and the groom. And at the end of the celebration, he had this special duty. He, he would guard the door to the bridal chamber until the groom came to go in to be with his, his now wife. And it would always be very late and so obviously very dark. And, and the best man would be listening for the groom's voice. And what would happen is this, when he heard the groom's voice, he would open the door and let him in and he would go away rejoicing not only for his friend's joy, but because he had finished the job he'd been asked to do. 
See, John's telling his disciples, that's me. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. And it's great. My role, he says, has never been about celebrating me. It's always been about celebrating and pointing to him. In chapter 1, right, when all the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come to John, they ask him, who are you? Tell us about yourself. John, John tells us that he responded. He, didn't, he did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah. Instead, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He goes on to say, the reason that I've come is so that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, my whole role, the whole job I was given was so that people might see Jesus, that they might know him, that they might see him, they might see him as the divine bridegroom, the Messiah, the King who's come to rescue and save. And he says, and now that that Lord, that bridegroom's been revealed, he's come to be with his bride, says, John says, and I've heard his voice. And so I'm filled with joy because the bride has come to be with his bride. The bridegroom's come to be with his bride. And my job is finished. And so he's filled with joy, even though that means his voice is now going to be overshadowed. And in a few months, he'll be put in prison by Herod and executed, and his voice will be silenced completely. And yet John is full of joy. Everybody's leaving him and going to Jesus, and he is absolutely thrilled about it. He's like, this is the whole thing. This is the whole reason I was here. Things are going greatly right now. Everything is going according to plan, right? Because he got to play the role that God had given him and he did it well. And so the bridegroom's joy has become his joy. And when you see Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior King, the divine bridegroom who's come to be with his bride, and when you see yourself as the best man, the sidekick, the lead rejoicer, what happens is that the attitude of your heart and life will increasingly look like John's in verse 30. What does he say? He must increase. I must decrease. In fact, what happens is you're going to want nothing more than that to happen. William Carey, a missionary who gave his life to share the gospel with the Hindu people in India, as he lay dying on his bed, he turned to his friend and said this. He said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior, for I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. Hudson Taylor, another well-known missionary to the Chinese people, he was once introduced at a pastor's conference, and he was given all these impressive titles and repeatedly described as someone who is great. And yet when he stepped to the pulpit, he quietly said, Dear friends, I am but a little servant. I'm but a little servant of an illustrious master. See, neither of those men whom God used powerfully and mightily for his glory, they weren't sad or depressed about the role that God had given them to play. No, they saw it perfectly. And their natural, joy-filled conclusion was that Jesus must increase and they must decrease. See, we live in this world where we tend to think, oh yeah, it's good for Jesus to increase, but also it's good for me to increase. In fact, the way Jesus increases is if I increase. Those two things seem like they have to be directly linked together, right? And there's definitely no way that Jesus' increase could be inversely proportional to my decrease, right? That's just not something we're willing to admit. 
And yet, the countercultural invitation of the gospel is that when Jesus' glory increases and yours decreases, what you actually get is all the joy you've been looking for. There's life there. One of the best parts about my job is that on a weekly basis, I get to stand up here and tell you about how incredible Jesus is. I get to tell you about how beautiful and captivating and compelling he is. I get to show you his glory and point it out to you in his word, and I get to make him look beautiful as he really is. And I often think that if you all understood how great that really was, everyone would be trying to get my job. Because like, it's really fun. Like, it is so life-giving to make Jesus glorious. There is such joy in it. And I work really hard to preach in such a way that he's the one who is captivating to you and not me. Because my deepest desire and my goal is never that you would walk away from a sermon thinking, wow, Brandon is a great preacher. What I want you to think is, wow, Jesus is an incredible Savior. I want you to be impressed with him and not with me. And I want you to follow him and not me. And I want you to worship him and not me because he is the one who is worthy of increase, not me. That's the very thing John's trying to do at the end of this passage this morning. John the Baptist's conversation with his disciples concludes at the end of verse 30, and then John the Gospel writer steps in with this commentary about Jesus. And the last five verses of the chapter are just John writing to us about all the reasons why Jesus is worthy of worship and increase, why he's the one that should be praised, why he's the one that all of our attention should go to. Verse 31, he says that he's the one, as who, the one who comes from heaven, that he's above all. He's superior to everyone and everything. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus speaks the truth, the very words of God. John the Baptist, he stood as the last in this long line of prophets who were kind of divine couriers with messages from God. And yet Jesus not only speaks the word of God, he is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets in various ways. He says, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Verse 35, John says, The fathers loved him, placed everything in his hands. There's no need for you to wear out your self-seeking after riches and power and influence. There's no need for envy and jealousy to consume you when you've been eclipsed by someone or something else. Because the greatest gifts in the universe are in the hands of the one that you have called Savior and Lord. When by faith you put your trust in him, he gives them to you. Chief among which is verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That word eternal life there, it's not just talking about life that doesn't end. It's talking about life to the full. It's a word in the original language that's not just talking about a, qual a quantity of life, but it's primarily talking about a quality of life, a life that's lived in the fullness of what it was always meant to be. And when you trust Jesus to be who he really is, what you get is the life you're after, the life you're longing for. And it begins now, and it goes on to the future. And what John says as he ends is that the reason why you get that kind of life it's because Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath for your sin. 
He pays the penalty for your treasonous rebellion. He pays the penalty for you thinking and acting as though you're God when you're not. And like he did for the bumbling bridegroom in chapter 2 who ran out of wine at his own wedding, Jesus lets us take credit for his abundant provision. He takes the penalty for our sin. He gives us the rewards of his perfectly lived life. Jesus must increase because he alone is worthy of it. And when God by his grace causes the magnitude of his glory and all that he's done to sink deeply into your hearts, what's going to happen is you'll be driven to worship him. You'll long for him to increase, for him to get all the glory and credit and praise and honor, not you. Because what you'll see is that he's the one who's worthy. See, the way out from under the crushing burden of envy and jealousy is to believe and to worship Jesus for who he is. That's the way out. You kill envy by worshiping Jesus. That's how you do it. That's the solution. And when you do that, you will not just be rid of envy, you will have this great abounding joy that comes from the honor you get to play whatever role God's given you in his kingdom. And instead of comparing yourself to someone you think you should be, you'll compare yourself to Jesus, realize that you are absolutely no one, and yet he's put you on the team. And you'll have such life and joy in doing whatever he asks you to do for him. No matter if it's impressive or little, no matter what it is, you'll have life and joy in doing it. Because you'll know you don't deserve any of that. And you'll find joy in him and making him great, even if that looks like making yourself small. That's the upside-down power of the gospel. It reorients our hearts and our lives. It roots out envy, and it does it as we're captivated by Jesus. And every week when we take communion, what we're doing is remembering and celebrating him, reminding ourselves of who he is and all that he has done for us, so that every week we get this chance to remember that without him we are helpless and hopeless, and yet with him we have life and joy unending. That his body and blood have been broken and shed for us so that through faith in him you, might ha- you and I might have true life, both now and for eternity. That's the offer. And so if you believed in Jesus... If he's the Messiah, if he's the Savior, if he's the King, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as a reminder of his body and blood broken and shed for you so that you might have life in him. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what you think about him and if following him is really what you're after, then I want to encourage you, you are so welcome here and in this church and in this community. But hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. You are not going to impress him. You are not going to change what he thinks about you by dipping some bread in some juice. That's not how it works. Instead, this invitation that God wants us to have a heart-level faith in him the kind of faith that transforms our lives and gives us joy in worshiping him, in making his name great. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and we are as a church, and I'd love to help you get to know him. 
So as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and you are being crushed under the weight of envy and jealousy. There is a version of you that you are convinced you either deserve to be or feel you must be. And you look at others who have become that thing and you are full of envy for them. And the invitation is that you might see and believe the truth about Jesus so that you might actually be able to not just get rid of envy, but that you might have joy in playing the role of whatever it is that God's given you to play and making him great. Others of you are here, and like John's disciples, you're looking to the wrong Savior. Maybe there are leaders in your life who have had good godly influence in your life, but instead of looking at the one they've been pointing to you, you're captivated by them. And they will always let you down. They won't last. They won't be sufficient. All of those people will let you down. John was murdered by John's followers. In just a few months after all this happened, John would be arrested and put to death. He was done. He didn't rise again. I encourage you, ask God to help you take your eyes off the people he's using for his glory and to help you to see the one that they are pointing you towards. Praise God for people he uses in your life to make him beautiful. But make sure that the one you see as beautiful and captivating is Jesus. Lastly, for all of us, John's invitation is that we might worship Jesus for who he is. So that we might have joy in playing the role God's given us in making his name great. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful this morning to get to come to be a part of your kingdom work. And although none of us have been given the role of Messiah and Savior and King, you did. And you used that role for our good. And so we, God, we pray, we ask that you might help us to see ourselves as being, have been given the honor and the dignity and the joy of being the best man, the maid of honor, the lead rejoicer. God, help us to find life and joy in making your name great. Help it to root out envy and jealousy in our hearts as we let you tell us who you've made us to be and as we rest in that reality and give us joy. Give us joy, Jesus, as we lead others and point them to you. There's life there. Help, it to, help us to find it in there. We pray, amen.